You're listening to the Sojourn Church New Albany sermon series, Finished, The End of the World and Our Way of Living in It. In this series, we see that the powers and principalities of this world are finished, and our depraved way of living in this world is finished. Christ leads us into a new way of being human, and eventually, an entirely new creation. Our text today is from Matthew 23. Now hear the word of the Lord. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Good morning, Sojourn. My name is Bobby. I am one of the pastors here. As you can tell from today's text, we have a problem. And the reason that we have a problem and not just the Pharisees is because people are people and sin lurks within every heart down through the generations. We are not better than the Pharisees. In fact, in many ways, we're worse. They were the good guys in first century Israel. The Sadducees were wealthy sellouts to Rome, but the Pharisees were loved by the the common folk, salt of the earth, good folk. They longed for God to liberate them from Rome and bring his promised kingdom down to earth. They poured over the scriptures and could explain minute points of theology. They inconvenienced themselves in all kinds of ways in an attempt to live holy lives. These were the people who would pound the table and say, we've got to honor the word of God. We've got to be serious about the word of God. We've got to love the word of God, even if the world stands against us. Do you know what Sojourn says? Do you know what you have said metaphorically, those of you who have committed to be members here, where Sojourn has staked its ground? We have got to be serious about the word of God. We've got to honor the word of God. We have got to love the word of God, even if the world stands against us. But Jesus wasn't impressed with that when the Pharisees said it. Now we could say, well, yeah, the the problem is they rejected Jesus. We haven't rejected Jesus. We all said Jesus is Lord and we got baptized like he told us to. But in none of these seven woes do we Find him saying, I convict you for not accepting me as Messiah. Here in this text, he's convicting them for things they were doing before he came along. And he's even holding them accountable for things their ancestors were doing hundreds of years before they were even born. What if we held ourselves up to the light of Scripture 
and we discovered that we are prone to the same sins and shortcomings with the same blind spots? What if we were brave enough to reconsider this story, putting ourselves in the place of the Pharisees as uncomfortable as that is? Could we live with that tension for even just the next 25 minutes? If the shoe fits, we're going to have to wear it and see if Jesus offers some way out. Back in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus delivered the Beatitudes, an Old Testament form of blessing. Here, he delivers seven woes, an Old Testament form of curse. The prophets used this language of woe to pronounce judgment, and that's what Jesus is doing here. Verse 13, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those who enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Woe to you, blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. It seems pretty simple at first. He says they are hypocrites whose teaching misleads sincere people while at the same time gaining converts who are even worse than they are. But what, what's with all this weird stuff about swearing by the temple and swearing by the gold and so on? Think back to your childhood. Did you ever say, I promise or I swear while crossing your fingers and holding them behind your back. That was supposed to be a technicality. You could get out of whatever you were supposedly swearing. These people were experts on mining the Bible for technicalities. Technicalities for what? For getting around the commandments that all other commandments stem from. Love God and love people. And by people, I mean neighbors. And by neighbors, I mean the way Jesus defined neighbors, which is to say everybody. When you break a vow, you dishonor the one that you committed to, and ultimately you dishonor God himself. It doesn't matter how much scripture you employ if you get out, if you use it to get out of the imperative to love and to honor. Verse 23, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence, blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. 
The fourth woe comes from doing too much of the unimportant things and not enough of the important ones. The fifth is an indictment of consumer spirituality. Gloss it up. Got to protect the brand. And when we do these two things, the, the result is the sixth woe. We look great on the outside, but inside we are rotten to the core. When we do not receive these woes as an invitation to life, by heeding their warnings, the result is the death of our hearts and the rot of our souls. And here we get this famous statement from Jesus about straining out gnats, but swallowing camels. Old Testament law said that dead things were impure. The, the Pharisees wanted to be pure at all times. So they would strain out any gnats, any insects that might've landed in their drinks, in their cups. Wouldn't want to accidentally swallow a drowned gnat because then you would be impure. But Jesus says, metaphorically, they would swallow a camel if they could because they were specialists at fine points of theology, but not in doing what was obviously right. Christians have a long history of straining out gnats, but swallowing camels in the way we read and apply the Bible. Centuries ago, the Church of Rome condemned Galileo for teaching that the sun is the center of our solar system and the earth revolves around it. Now, he's not even the one who discovered that. Mind you, Copernicus had discovered that long before and it was settled fact. He was just repeating it. But in 1633, the Catholic Church, who had many excellent scholars who knew the Bible frontwards and back and who uh, would talk about many beautiful truths of Scripture, back then they were arguing for the same thing that many of us good Baptists argue for today. The, uh, quote, plain meaning of Scripture and a method of interpretation called proof texting, where you find a verse that seems to be plainly for your argument, maybe a few verses scattered here or there throughout the Bible, and you use it like a weapon. Here are a couple they found. Psalm 19, verse 6. The sun rises at one end of the heavens and follows its course to the other end. And here we have it. It's in black and white. And, and we observe this every day, right? You walk outside in the morning, look to the east, and the sun is rising. Walk outside in the evening, look to the west, the sun is setting. It's observable with our eyes, and it's right here in black and white in Scripture. Another one, Psalm 93, verse 1. The world stands firm and cannot be shaken. So in the first verse, we find proof that the sun is the one that's moving. And here we find proof the, the earth is not moving. Earth's not going anywhere. The earth stands firm. Now, this may seem silly to us today, but from a mistaken, plain reading of Scripture, they had developed a whole philosophy about the earth as the center of the universe. It showed how much God loved us, that he put us at the immovable center of everything. They would have said this is a gospel issue. Galileo seems to be going against the plain meaning of Scripture and attacking the very notion of God's love for us. So here was the verdict of the church. We pronounce, judge, and declare that you, 
the said Galileo, have rendered yourself vehemently suspected by this holy office of heresy, that is, of having believed and held the doctrine which is false and contrary to the holy and divine scriptures, that the Son is the center of the world, and that it does not move from east to west, and that the earth does move and is not the center. Galileo spent the rest of his life under house arrest. Do you know when the Vatican publicly admitted that Galileo was right and cleared his name of heresy? Nineteen ninety-two. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. This seventh woe comes from the temptation to idealize our past, but disown the sins of our ancestors and reject the indictments of our living prophets. Now, a minute ago, we had some fun with the Catholics over Galileo. Let's bring it closer to home. Every preacher, when he steps into the pulpit, is preparing to preach to a certain people, his congregation, those that he knows will be listening to him. So listen, whoever you are, if you're watching this right now, if you're listening to this, I am so glad that you are here. But there is a specific people that I believe are here watching who are listening. And those are the ones that I'm primarily speaking to. So this morning, I am not primarily speaking to Muslims. I'm not primarily speaking to Hindus. I'm not speaking to atheistic communists. I'm not speaking to uh, elite agnostics on the East Coast. I'm talking to my brothers and sisters in a evangelical congregation within the Southern Baptist Convention in the meat and potato state of Indiana. We have to get past this temptation that we all have, that I have, to say, oh yeah, well, what about them? Well, what about, did you hear what they're planning? Do you know what they're saying? What about him? What about her? What about, what about, what about, what about? What about us? This is family talk this morning. Do you know when the Southern Baptist Convention finally and formally renounced our historic support of slavery and segregation? Nineteen ninety five. Many Southern Baptists continue to have uh, to struggle with this today, to get uncomfortable as soon as you start talking like this. Practically break out in hives. Why? Well, slavery ended long before we were born. What do we have to do with it? Why is that our problem? Why, why should we apologize for that? Now, if you'll be patient with me, I'll show you why this is important, how it relates to the seven woes and how this is worth your time, even if you know that the earth revolves around the sun, and even if you hate 
slavery. Let's go back to a generation that said, okay, maybe it was wrong to bring people here in chains against their will and to sell them. But after all, slavery is in the Bible. And how could they even take care of themselves if we freed them? We, we give them food and water and housing and clothing. We've shared the gospel with them. Now, that part about slavery being in the Bible, they just didn't listen to faithful abolitionist preachers who collected, corrected their misreading and misunderstanding of Scripture. The next generation is thankful to the previous one for raising and mentoring them and teaching them many good things from the Bible. They strained out many theological gnats for them. But this new generation says, of course, our parents and our teachers were not perfect. Of course, it's, it's better that the slaves are free. But slavery is in the Bible. And, and it's not fair for the government to just take stuff from us and give it to the former slaves of our parents, our mentors, our pastors. That part about slavery being in the Bible, well, they just didn't listen to faithful abolitionist preachers who corrected their misreading and misunderstanding of Scripture because those aren't the preachers that their parents and mentors told them to follow. The next generation is thankful to the previous one for raising and mentoring them and teaching them many good things from the Bible. I'm not being sarcastic here. I'm not being facetious here. Many good, beautiful, helpful, needful things from Scripture. But they say, of course, those Jim Crow laws were bad. But it makes sense to have separate schools and neighborhoods because we're all sinners. And that means the races just cannot get along when they are too close together. And after all, slavery is in the Bible. The next generation is thankful to the previous one for raising and mentoring them and teaching them many good things from the Bible. But they say, of course, Martin Luther King has a point but I don't agree with all this holding up traffic and stopping business with these marches and they're just bringing all this trouble on themselves and they're creating all this chaos in society. And after all, slavery is in the Bible. The slaves were just supposed to pray and to endure patiently, not cause all this fuss. Now, they had no idea that faithful ministers had answered all that stuff about slavery in the Bible because when they were searching for prized editions of old theology books for their personal collections, they were looking for books by ministers whom they were taught to revere, who had happened to own slaves, and who favored a plain meaning of Scripture approach to passages that supported their economy and lifestyle. And these attitudes get passed down with a lot of faithful, good Bible preaching, and it is very hard to separate the wheat from the weeds. And so I guess it was inevitable what happened on March 23rd, 2004, 17 years ago. Let me tell you about a room bigger than this one, filled with hundreds of seminary students in 2004 who had come to hear one of their heroes 
a man named Paul Presler, who stood for many good truths of Scripture, a role model for a generation of pastors and professors, not a famous preacher himself, but a role model to a generation of preachers scattered all across this nation, considered one of the two leaders in a resurgence of Orthodox Bible doctrine being taught in our colleges and our seminaries and our churches. And as these seminary students in 2004 came to hear him regale his protégés with tales of standing firm for the word of God, he told them of how he defeated some theological opponents. And as he described it, he said this. And it, it was like Gettysburg, but this time the right side won. <laughs> and unfortunately, sentiments like that are not unheard of in the contemporary Christian church, not unheard of in leadership within the contemporary Christian church. But what's more common is the silent complicity of the average Christian who says, shh, let's not talk about things like that. Let's just talk about the gospel. As if the gospel doesn't have anything to say about that. As if the Holy Spirit is not grieved by that. As if holiness can have any part with that. And more disturbing than the statement was the next sound that you heard in that room. Full of seminary students, 23 years old, 24 years old in 2004, by the hundreds, offering up boisterous laughter and scattered applause. After all, they'd spent a lifetime swimming in cultural waters that made the joke seem harmless even if they kind of believed it. Now, what are all those seminary students from 2004 with the full legacy of attitudes and assumptions they've inherited? What would they be doing now? What's the career path? Seminary students in 2004, what would they probably be doing in 2021? Pastoring churches hosting podcasts, authoring books, writing Bible study curricula, blog posts, lots of tweets, shepherding the flock. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them. So last month, Many Christians who run in these circles from all across America objected to the message that faithful churches have put out at Christmas time for 2,000 years. The reminder that our Lord was born in the most disadvantaged of circumstances, that he was a political refugee in Egypt as a baby, that he was part of a conquered nation and a despised minority within the empire, and that he often had no place 
to lay his head. These are the straight facts of scripture. These are the straight facts of history. But these dissenters by the thousands took to blogs and social media, denounced the Gospel Coalition and Dr. Russ Moore and wrote angry emails to pastors across this nation saying, false, Jesus is the eternal majestic God who owns everything. So don't you dare compare him to the homeless and the poor and refugees and minorities. And thus these people who were very good at straining out theological gnats swallowed a camel flirting with the ancient heresy of docetism, sometimes pronounced docetism, sometimes called seemism, because it teaches that Jesus only seemed to suffer. He only seemed to be poor. He only seemed to experience discomfort. He only seemed to be dead for three days because after all, he was God. So they downplay the biblical teaching that Jesus was fully God and fully human. Not half and half, but fully each. Pleased as man with man to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. If Jesus only seemed to go through everything the Bible says he went through as a human, then you and I only seem to be saved. It's an illusion. The only way he could take our place on a cross is if he is made just like us with all the hatred of hell thrown against him. If any of this sounds confusing, read Hebrews. You could read Hebrews in 45 minutes this afternoon. And then, three weeks ago, less than three weeks ago, a mob stormed our nation's capital. There are many riots, but none have invaded our Capitol building. Many claiming to be Christians, even pastors. There are many riots, but none with so many who claim to be evangelical Christians, erecting crosses on the Capitol lawn, holding Jesus signage. The proud boys led them in prayer, asking Jesus to restore proper values before chanting, hang Mike Pence and hunting congressional leaders. Among the insurrectionists, looting and attacking were those waving Confederate flags. The Confederate army wasn't even able to get into the Capitol building in the Civil War. This wasn't some random incident that no one saw coming. This didn't occur in a vacuum. And the reason some of your friends and family are breaking your heart with crazy conspiracy theories, gaslighting, and whataboutisms to deflect attention from the real story is because they hear these things from people who also teach them precious Bible truth, and they cannot tell the two apart. Severing the truth from error feels like you're cutting them in half, but these voices they're listening to keep them in confusion with new conspiracies, old lies, and a gospel that only confronts the sins of other people. There's racial hate, 
religious war and wolves among the sheep. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them. We're not better than the Pharisees. Verse 35, and so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly, I tell you, all this will come on this generation. And so it did when the Romans besieged Jerusalem, tore down the temple and brought untold suffering on those people in 70 AD. But what's with all the history lessons this morning? Of course, no one here is a Pharisee. No one here believes slavery is okay. No one here thinks that the earth or the sun revolves around the earth. But what are our blind spots? The tricky thing about a blind spot is you usually don't know when you have one, especially when you've inherited it from mentors or ancestors that you love who taught you many good and helpful things. We can't even begin to identify our own blind spots until we cry out, search me, God, and know my heart. See if there is any offensive way in me. And then we read the Bible to be formed by it. We humbly sit with the text. We don't weaponize it. We don't start from the assumption that we're the good guys and anyone that we're uncomfortable with must be defeated, subjugated, kept away. We don't look for Bible verses to validate ourselves. We need Jesus to give us humility. Pastor Sam talked about this last week. It was the missing ingredient that the Pharisees just didn't have. We need Jesus to give us this humility and curiosity as we major on the majors, always realizing that the truth, not just some true facts, but the truth embodied in the person of Jesus leads us to love God and love others. This was Jesus' own summary of the law and the prophets. So any of our ideas that don't end there have taken a wrong turn somewhere. We take a humble curiosity at the feet of Jesus. And we do it together as the Spirit leads us. The church is always strongest with a communal process of interpreting Scripture, which not only includes our local church, not only includes churches in the United States, but the wisdom of the global church in all times and places. Those Christians who lived closest Two Bible times did us a great service in summarizing the biblical doctrines that are of first importance, and we call them the creeds. You can always read the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed in your Sojourn app, and we just recited the Apostles' Creed earlier in this service. When you find yourself in a disagreement with a sister or brother about the way to live 
or what the Bible says, step one is to ask yourself how this does on the love God and love your neighbor scale. Step two, is your viewpoint in the creeds? Or if not, does it contradict anything in the creeds? Step three, ask, does it get me more of Christ? Does it produce his character within me? Many of you are about to learn this beginning tomorrow in our brand new women's school class, studying a book by Jen Wilkin called In His Image, 10 Ways God Calls Us to Reflect His Character. Jen expresses these attributes in a simple, clear way. Here is how she lists them. God is most holy, loving, good, just, merciful, gracious, faithful, patient, truthful, wise. When you have a conflicting opinion with other believers that isn't a creedal doctrine, opinions that each of you can hold without violating the character of God or the imperative to love, this is where humility and curiosity come in. It doesn't mean there isn't a right or wrong or the, the, the issue is not important, but instead of merely trying to win an argument, let us be a people who pray, Lord, is there something you want to show me here? And if you won't reveal to both of us which one is right at this time, then reveal how we can love each other and carry out your mission in spite of our differences as we continue to learn from you. Verse 39, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. As Jesus was denouncing the sins of the Pharisees, he was on his way to draw onto himself all of the sins of the world. 700 years before, the prophet Isaiah had said that Israel would be a light to the nations and they would do so through one person who would bear their guilt and sin upon himself. Jesus, the mother hen who longs to gather the chicks together under her wings, will now take the punishment upon himself. Will we humbly, will we humble ourselves to welcome the Jesus who denounces our own evil and the evil of our enemies and then takes it all upon himself in an overwhelming act of love? Or will we insist that there's not really a whole lot for him to critique us about, but we could point him to some other folks who need correcting? So here's my Monday challenge for you today. Ask yourself, if you've changed your opinion about anything major in the last two years, and then talk about it with your family, friends, or community group. Now, some of you can say, Yes, I wasn't even a Christian two years ago. Uh, others had little understanding of the Bible or you believed some theological error a couple of years ago. But for many of you, it may be more subtle. Your understanding of the Bible has been great for a long time. Maybe it's two years ago, I thought that all homeless people were just lazy and they had brought it upon themselves. But then I met so-and-so and I got to hear her story. 
Then I met others and I got to hear more stories and it broadened my perspective, changed my outlook. It made me more compassionate. Talk about it and then thank Jesus for making you more like him. Then pray that he will continue to do this work, revealing any blind spots that you may have, any blind spots that this church may have. Believing that he will grant wisdom to anyone who asks because he's already proven to give all of himself to us. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread like this one. And after giving thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Then he took a cup of wine like this one. And he said, this is my blood shed for you. Drink this in remembrance of me until I come again. Thank you for listening. Keep in touch with Sojourn New Albany on Facebook or download the free Sojourn Collective app for iPhone or Android, where you can see our full library of sermon series, audio and video, discussion questions, event calendar, ministries, and much more.